Hi, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. music is now played we are back we are here to talk hi james it's been a while how how are you how have you been oh we've got uh so much to catch up on it's i'm kind of in the middle of a crunch right now because i'm in the middle of uh touring around the country for the 92nd newberry film festival which you very kindly talked about on your blog yes uh, thank you and on this podcast in previous weeks yeah so um we we I did a bunch of shows and i've got about five more shows left to go i'm going to be in new york this weekend i'm going to be in new york state for 10 days and I think this is the longest I've been away from my daughters, so ten days at a time. So it's gonna be, it's gonna be tough. And here you are spending another night away from them to do this this chuckle-headed podcast. Not only that, tomorrow is my birthday, and we're we're starting recording at nine fifty. So it might become my birthday while we're still recording this. So well, happy birthday, James. Thank you. So podcast completists might remember that in an earlier episode. Matt mentioned that he had written a play called Shakespeare or the Devil, and that I was going to have a a reading party once you get together, like about you know, twenty of my friends. We'd all read through Matt's play and then give him notes. Yeah, well, that was our first episode back in October. We talked about how we were going to be doing that in a few weeks. We were going to do it a couple days after the election, and then the election happened, and it was just too much of a bummer. We just didn't do it. Kept talking about rescheduling it, and finally, many months later, we did it. So since the last time we've done this podcast. James was wonderful enough to host a reading of my play, and it was, uh, I think, a big success. Yeah, good. I'm glad, I, I, I'm glad to hear that. I remember a couple days after the uh, the, um, the the party, I emailed you, and I was like, so, pretty good party, right? Pretty good party. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it was good. I was like, so, did you, um, did you get any like good notes out of that? And you're like, uh-huh. And I, I, was, I was like, are you going to take them? And you're like, no, I'm not going to take any of the notes. I... <laughs> I'm sure I'll take And I was notes. like, why did I even have that party? And then Matt literally wrote back, so people could sit and enjoy a perfectly written play that doesn't need any alterations. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, you know, of course I'm going to take notes, but, uh, but it's hard. It's hard taking notes, isn't it? It's much easier to say, no, that note's not right. Uh, everything I did was exactly right exactly the first time. And I don't need to take any notes. I don't need to do anything. Especially having written something that's kind of funny. You'll recall also in that first podcast, I talked about having written a comedy and James audibly blanches on air <laughs> and says, it's a comedy? And uh, it turned out that had happened to a couple people who had come to the reading. They had read it in advance and said, okay, this is a drama. This is not a comedy. And this is, by the way, a big theme in the play is it's a play about a play. And is the play they're doing a drama or a comedy is a question in the play. And then there's also a general question in the play, is life a drama or a comedy? And then I write my script, I write my play, and people read it and they think it's a drama. And then when we actually performed it, the wonderful thing was it was a comedy. People were really laughing. Yeah, you seemed like you were visibly surprised at how much people were laughing. There, there were scenes in which you like, were too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the page, it looks very dramatic and spoken aloud. It was, it was funny, but it wasn't funny like unintentionally funny. It came across as like, oh, what a masterfully constructed comic scene. Why, thank you, James. But, but but it was inadvertent, wasn't it? Like you? Did no, you... it was vertent. Uh, it was vertent. Oh wow! <laughs> it was ad and vertent. It was uh, it was no. I I had always intended this to be a comedy, but a dry one. It's a farce. It's a true story, but it's a farcical true story. And I was worried that people were reading it and not thinking it was exactly funny. But uh, and of course that's still a problem going forward <laughs> because people are going to read it a lot more than they're going to see it performed. But I was very gratified to hear people laugh. It's you know I've never really 
never really had people read. I've written comedies before, but I've never had them performed before. So uh, I've never actually gotten to hear people laugh. Well, you're right. I guess it didn't need any alterations after all. No, no alterations whatsoever. I just took all those notes and I threw them down the toilet. It's funny. I was as I was uh, preparing my notes for today's episode. I had a familiar twinge of regret when I saw that the title of the book, my book, The Secrets of Story, that we refer to often on this podcast, given that it is The Secrets of Story podcast, for each chapter of my book, I gave it a title that was somewhat alliterative. The dialogue chapter was entitled Crafting Dynamic Dialogue. And then I was told by my publisher, Writer's Digest, you can't do that because we're publishing a book called Crafting Dynamic crafting dynamic dialogue that with that exact title that's about to come out from writer's digest press so you have to change the title of that chapter and all you could come up with was drafting electric dialogue which i hate <laughs> i hate that Wait, chapter is, is that what it's called that chapter of the book is called drafting electric dialogue which was a last minute hail mary when i couldn't have crafting dynamic dialogue which was the true title of the chapter and i just want to know if, I just want to say right now, if you are listening right now, that that author for Writer's Digest who published the book, Crafting Dynamic Dialogue, I want you to go to hell. You can go to hell right now because you <laughs> took my my chapter name. Granted, it was your book name. I guess a book name beats a chapter name. But you took my chapter name and left me with a truly lame chapter name, Drafting Electric Dialogue. Wait, wait, you can't put this on them. There's like a million, there's like literally countless number of other words and combinations of words you could have used. I should have, I should have taken it to the blog. I should have had a vote on the blog as to what, what mm-hmm. we should rename the chapter uh, because, dear God, drafting electric dialogue is not great. <laughs> and I think it speaks to your issues here, James, where I am in favor of electric dialogue. I am in favor of jazzed dialogue, uh, which you are not necessarily always in favor of. I don't, well, I, I, maybe I need to know what you mean by electric and jazzed. Jazz, dynamic. Well, that's why I prefer dynamic. You know, to me, dialogue is definitely about opposition. It's about two people who are each pursuing a goal. And, you know, this goes back to, you know, it's funny. What they teach writers and what they teach actors is entirely different, even though writers and actors wind up working together across this medium where they never actually get to speak to each other. But the actors are reading what the writers have written. But, you know, it's funny. When an actor sits down with the script, what they're acting teachers tell them is right next to every line of dialogue, write what your intention with that line of dialogue is, write what you're trying to get mm-hmm. when you say that line of dialogue. And nobody ever says to us, the writers, hey, by the way, if an actor eventually ends up reading what you've written, they're going to have to do this. So you'd better figure out in advance what all these things are. Nobody ever talks to writers in terms of you need to figure out what the intention of every line is. Until Matt Bird. Until I come on. And I'm the one person who is going like, hey, if this is what the actor is going to be doing anyway. We should be thinking about this too. We should be thinking about, you know, what do you want? What are you pursuing? What are you pushing for? And I think that most dialogues should be spoken by people who are trying to get something that should be, you know, should be agenda-based dialogue, which you don't necessarily agree with. No, I don't. Um, And I'm I'm saying that it, it shouldn't always be that way. And I think that if... So did you see Arrival? Mm-hmm. So Arrival is about two mutually incomprehensible, you know, cultures trying to understand each other, right? Right. And yes, there's something that each wants from the other. That you know, the the humans, you know, want to know why are they there? Are they a threat? You know, this that, and, and the aliens want the humans to do something, you know, so they can get what they want. And it's true that they both want something, but I think if you overly prioritize that and only think of that, you're going to end up with these scenes which. 
it's overly contentious. If, if you like foreground that in your mind as a rule, that everybody's just trying to get something out of each other and just trying to forward their goals, I, I think a better way for, for me when I think of dialogue is like, you're, and this maybe comes out of the fact that like I learned how to do dialogue on my feet in improv. Right. It's like two people are trying to come to an understanding and there's a, a, there's a thing between the two of them, this group mind, they call it an improv, that is a, is a unique thing that's created between those people in that moment. And it's changing every second. It's like it's a relationship between, between the two of them. And it can be nourished or it can be hurt. Um, and it's, a, it's like a third thing that's always in the room. And if two people are always simply selfishly just trying to get their aims over the other person, I don't think that's a way we really act in life. Um, I, I think we, we, we're all, yes, we're trying to get our own goals, but we're also, we're, we're not sociopathic monsters. We do think of the other person. We do, um, contra some of your advice, wonder, what's wrong? You said, like, nobody goes into a room and says, like, you know, what's what's wrong or what's your problem or how, how can I help you? Like, people don't sit around asking, you know, whether or not they're going to help each other. I think people do do that. People do care about each other. People do sometimes prioritize other people's goals over their own. And I think the kind of dialogue you're talking about is kind of like something that's symptomatic of American pop culture in the past 15 years. It's like the games of thronesification of culture in which everything is about anti-heroes who break the rules and fuck people over in more and more creative and baroque ways. So you see it in Game of Thrones, you see it in Breaking Bad, you know, Sopranos, and I, I you know, Mad Men, and I find them, I, I, I watch like two or three episodes of all these things, and I get immediately turned off. Right. And now what I what I enjoy personally is something like, um, like the Mike Lee movie, Topsy Turvy. Yeah. It's about Gilbert and Sullivan and the making of the Mikado in the 19th century. From Mike Lee. One minute, Mr. Grossman. Five minutes. Five minutes, sir. The director of Secrets and Lies. Comes a story of inspiration. Three little maids from school are we. Collaboration. I should like to thank you all most passionately for your tremendous hard work and application. And the magic that happens. You light up the world. You can't help it. When the world is turned upside down. Something inherently disappointing about success. Topsy-turvy. And even though everybody has their own goals and he sees everything, you can also see people are honestly and earnestly trying to work together and there's something between the two characters that they both care about that there's kind of some reciprocity. It's not just people screwing each other over to get some narrow goal of their own. There, there's there's more people. If there's two people in the scene, there's more people in that scene than just those two people. There's a third thing that is created between those two people that is nourished or damaged as they talk, and the audience can feel that. If you have just two mammoth characters just trying to like, kind of scrabble at each other to see who wins, that could only go so far before it gets really tedious for me. Right. No, it's that is a danger. Is that you're going to end up with with this Game of Thronesification of dialogue? And you know, I have very little tolerance. You know, I I walked away from Game of Thrones. I walked away from The Walking Dead. I walked away from a lot of these shows. You know, I definitely stuck it out with uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Huge fan of those still. But you're right. It's certainly you look at Breaking Bad and uh, Walter White was a true sociopath and could not say anything without 
pursuing an agenda. You know, every time he had any sort of moment of vulnerability, it always turned out to be feigned in order to pursue an agenda. And he wants the person to think he's having a moment of vulnerability when he's really not. And that could get tiresome on that show, even though it's one of the you know greatest written shows of all time. There were times when I'm like, especially when it felt like they were trying to trick me, and they're like, oh, don't, don't worry, this time Walt's really having a moment of vulnerability. And I'm mm-hmm. like, ugh. I know, I know, you're trying to trick me again into thinking he's having a moment of vulnerability, and then we find out that it's all part of uh, his latest scheme. You know, you're right, there is that thing. And, and I do love topsy-turvy. I do love doing something about creating something good is one of the hardest things to write and can be amazing when it's written. And I do wish I had some of your improv training. I always wished I should, could have taken improv you, classes. You live in Chicago. I do live in Chicago, it's D- This true. is like if you, anywhere, even when you lived in New York, you could have gone to UCB. Right. Um, like it's you don't live in Moscow, Idaho. I mean, you could I, now. We have listeners in Moscow, Idaho, who are like, "Why do you have to pick on us?" Well, no, I'm not picking. I'm just saying. I, I bet there's no improv training centers there on the level of Second City. They'd probably be the first to admit that. Now, they probably have now a pretty the good... improv training chief of Moscow, Idaho, is like, <laughs> "Why is he picking on me?" If I if I had to alienate the Matt Besser of Moscow, Idaho, I guess I'll have to take that to make my point. Now, no, okay, now he feels great. He's like, <laughs> wow, I've been called the Mad Besser of Moscow, I know. No, it's true. I think that I, I do think maybe you've gotten good stuff from that class that I didn't get. You know, I, so I took one directing the actor class, and it did, te- it did teach me a lot to have to act a little bit. The one thing I really learned was we've been doing a scene for a long time, and I'm not an actor, and I was really terrible at it. And then finally, like, we were going to do one last rehearsal. I'm like, okay, well, my partner wanted to do one last rehearsal. I'm like, well, I have to eat lunch. Okay, we'll go into a rehearsal while I'm eating lunch. And so I was sitting there, and I was, like, wrestling with this sandwich while running through my dialogue. And suddenly the dialogue was great. And that it was, you know, because I wasn't just sitting there <laughs> focusing on what I was trying to say. I wasn't uh-huh. just doing something. And that's become part of my advice on the blog and in the book Eat is sandwich. always put objects in their hands. Mm. And that partially came from my experience as an actor and realizing that, you know, oh, my God, it's so much. It feels so much more realistic and believable in life to be having a conversation while you're eating a sandwich than it does to be, you know, sitting in a room and talking and having a conversation with somebody. But getting to your larger point. Um, you know, I like to give a counterpoint, which is I like to play a scene from a recent blockbuster. This is a scene, you know, you were saying that people don't, you know, I was, I say that people don't walk in a room and say, you know, hey, what's wrong? Do you know what your problem is? And you were saying that that can happen. But here's the sort of scene where that does happen. This is a scene from the movie Star Trek Beyond where they felt the need to include a character scene. They felt the need to have a little scene where we get to know James T. Kirk a little bit before the movie begins. And so he's given a scene of introspection. And it's not just introspection with himself alone. His friend, Bones, walks in and asks him, what's wrong? And then you get this scene. Sorry I'm late. Keenzer's leaking some kind of highly acidic green goo. And Scotty's terrified he's going to sneeze on the warp core and kill us all. The hell are you drinking? Uh, pretty sure it's the rest of that Saurian brandy we picked up on Thesis. My God, man, are you trying to go blind? That stuff's illegal. Besides, I found this in Chekhov's locker. Wow. Right? I mean, I always assumed he'd be a vodka vodka guy, exactly. I wanted to have something appropriate for your birthday. Uh, it's in a couple days, you know I don't care about that. I know. I know you don't like celebrating it on the day, because it's also the day your paw bit the dust. I was being sensitive. Did they teach you about bedside manner in medical school? It's just your southern charm. 
call your mom? Yeah, of course I'll call her in the day. When you're older. Yeah, that's usually how it works. A year older than he ever got to be. He joined Starfleet because he, he believed in it. I told him not to dare. You joined to see if you could live up to him. You spent all this time trying to be George Kirk. Now you're wondering just what it means to be Jim. Why you're out here. To perfect eyesight and a full head of hair. So, to me, that is truly terrible filmmaking. That is truly terrible writing, a truly terrible scene. And it's because it's based on this idea that friends are people who come up to you and ask you what's your problem, you know, what's wrong, what's the matter, and then you tell them earnestly and honestly what's the matter, and they earnestly and honestly give you some advice, and then you go on about your day. And to me, I this is what I'm afraid of. When you say that I'm I'm turning everything into Game of Thrones, I'm thinking, no, I'm just trying to avoid scenes like this. I'm trying to avoid scenes in which everybody is open and honest and earnest and is engaging in dreadful, dreadfully dull scenes, dreadfully dull dialogue. You mentioned this in your blog. I think there's good and bad ways to do, you know, ruthless Game of Thrones and mammoth-y stuff. And there's good and bad ways to watch people connect. And I, there, there's something exhilarating about watching two people honestly connect um but this scene was not exhilarating no no it's not it's just badly it's but just like i i ate a bad apple so i'm never gonna have another apple again you know there's good apples and there's bad apples um isn't there isn't that scene that you just mentioned are they trying to call back to the scene at the beginning of Wrath of Khan? Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, I thought about doing a follow-up post on the blog where I go, like, let's look at the similar scene at the beginning of Wrath of Khan and talk about why that scene works well, and the scene doesn't. Let's play that. It's online. Let's just look at it right now, and then, and then we can continue our conversation. Okay, so we went back and forth about that for a little while. He convinced me we should do the scene. We, went, we found the scene online. We watched it, and then we came back and introed the scene. So here is the introduction we then recorded for the scene. Let me set the scene for this second Star Trek scene. So, once again, we have a scene where it's Kirk's birthday and Bones comes to him. Isn't with, it crazy? This is my birthday? And it's funny. We're doing this. Here we are, two friends, meeting on the eve of your birthday. Jim and Kirk, drinking, James Kennedy? James Kirk, James Kennedy. We're drinking together. It's your birthday tomorrow. But so in this scene, Bones, once again, has brought some uh, illegal hooch to... Jim Kirk, once again, it's Jim Kirk's birthday. This time, however, he gives him the illegal hooch and then surprises him with a second gift, which is a pair of bifocals, a pair of reading glasses, because it turns out that Kirk is allergic to the future's cure to old age eyesight. And then he goes in for the kill. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fact that you refer to it as going in for the kill tells me everything I need to know about your philosophy. This is charming. For most patients your age, I usually recommend Retinox 5. I'm allergic to retinas. Exactly. Cheers. Cheers. Ah. Happy birthday. I don't know what to say. Well, you could say thank you. Thank you. Damn it, Jim. What the hell is the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? Bones, I don't want to be lectured. What the hell do you want? This is not about age. And you know it. It's about you flying a goddamn computer console when you want to be out there hopping galaxies. Spare me your notions of poetry, please. We all have our assigned duties. Paul, you're a hiding. 
Hiding behind rules and regulations. Who am I hiding from? From yourself, Admiral. Don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? Jim, I'm your doctor, and I'm your friend. Get back your command. Get it back before you turn into part of this collection. Before you really do grow old. So what's the difference between those two scenes, and was Wrath of Khan better? Yeah, didn't you think it was better? I did think it was better. It's much better. You know, I think one of the things that makes the scene work better is that there's something at stake. He's really given something up. He is... He used to be a captain, now he's an admiral, he misses being a captain. Mm -hmm. He is torn up about it. His friend, and of course, in this case, Bones has something to gain from, you know, he's saying, you want to get back out there, you want to be in charge of your own ship again, you want to get back out and see the stars, and of course, everything that Kirk gets, Bones will get. Yeah, but that's secondary. I think Bones really does care about Kirk. You can see it yeah. in, in the scene, and I don't, I don't think it, he is um, in, in some kind of cynical way angling to make Kirk do something he doesn't want to do in order for Bones to get what he wants. I don't want to, don't twist this scene to make it kind of like ex post facto fit your, your checklist. But, but it's, but there is that element to it. I think that he wants, I think that Bones, what Bones wants is alive in this scene, whereas what Bones wants was completely dead in the other scene. But I think that, you know. I think Bones wants the Kirk's well-being, he, number one. In this scene. In both scenes. In both scenes, Bones wants Kirk's well-being. But I feel like in this scene, you know, it's just much more flinty. There's just a sense that Bones is a genuinely flinty guy in this. I would say this bears me out. I would say that, you know, there's something really at stake here. There's some there's some action that Bones wants Jim to do in this version. He's saying, mm -hmm. you have to get your command back. He has come in, I think, with that goal in mind. I think he has walked into this scene. You know, I think he... It's a, it's a slap to the face to give him those glasses. And it's because he has come in there with a goal in mind. He's come in there with the goal of, I'm going to convince you to give up your admiralty, go back to being a captain, and taking us all back out into space again. If I felt that as I was watching the scene, I would have no sympathy for Bones, and I would hate his character. Like, even though when we read back into it, we say, oh, yeah, he softened him up with the ale, and then he kind of humiliated him with the glasses, and then he kind of, like, lit into some harsh truths. That is a very good tactic to get what you want, but I didn't feel that he was um, coming in there with some master plan. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to lay in. Um, it felt like somebody who really cared about his friends. I, I know he likes this ale. I know he kind of needs glasses too, and he's allergic to that one process. He does need glasses no matter what. Um, and and then and then he genuinely. What I think I think you have to at least acknowledge the part of maybe I need to acknowledge that people do have schemes and tricks and traps. But you do have to acknowledge that people always, especially with their friends, want to make a genuine connection and they want to understand and they want to be understood. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some scenes about genuine friendship and, you know, in which these are two people who genuinely love each other. I mean, like, what, what is the alternative? If you're not writing about people making connections and coming to understandings, then what are you writing about insects scrabbling with each other for dominance? Because I don't want to ever see that. That's what life is, James. No, it's not.
The, uh, we have fundamentally disagree about that, and I don't even think you agree with yourself. I think I do. Um, but really, do, when, is, is a Scrabble for dominance your relationship with your wife, with uh, your kids, with um, me? Uh, um, yes, you certainly. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do that one. Let's go ahead and uh, jump to that one. Well, I don't yes, feel that I way about you. Scrabble. I don't feel that way. About, I don't. I don't feel like scrabbling for dominance with you. I, f- I feel that I want to like we're, come to some understanding with you. We're making ca- we're making sweet cash off our off our podcast <laughs> here, but based all based on the fact that we scrabble for dominance. It's true. With when one has a wife and kids, that then one is hopefully had this rare, wonderful opportunity to move beyond scrabbling for dominance and form genuinely loving connections. Have you ever had a friend in your life? I have had friends, indeed. <laughs> then you know that that's not true. James, we, we, our friendship is a perfect example of this. We are genuinely friends. We are good friends. But I, but I cover my groin every time I have a conversation with you. <laughs> because you're always wrong and you won't be corrected. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is, you know, in real life with most friendships and in fact most marriages, I would say, most marriages are not as good as my marriage with my wife and there's a whole lot of scramble for dominance there. I think that and most importantly we're talking about drama. We're talking about writing drama. We're talking, it's very, very hard to write as Mike Lee does. Mike Lee, who wrote and directed Topsy Turvy. It's very hard to create the sort of intimacy that Mike Lee creates. And to write about something like, I'm going to write about the creation of a comic opera. And that is an extremely hard thing to write. To say, I'm going to write about the creation of a comic opera. You know, most things are about the creation of a criminal scheme. Most things are about much darker material because that's drama. The nature of drama is that you're writing about things clashing against each other dramatically. 50 movies came out about criminal schemes that year that nobody remembers, but I still remember Topsy Turvy. Nobody remembers Topsy Turvy. <laughs> but I do. But it's you special do. to me. But you do. It's uh, special uh, to okay, you. How about this? Obviously, in every relationship, there's going to be some measure of a scrabble for dominance as distasteful as that is to me. But I, I think that you are an insect if if you don't understand and believe and know that there is also this mutual desire for understanding that is not some kind of uh, pitiless, Darwinian, shitty, hierarchical um, rituals of dominance and submission. Fuck no, I would kill myself if that's what I believe life was. Right. But, but it's what drama is. No, the drama is life. And dra- drama is both about this scrabble for dominance, but it's also about people trying to understand each other. I'm saying it's both, and you just want to say it's one. I'm saying that it tends to be one. I'm saying the real reason why the one Star Trek scene works and the other one doesn't is because Bones is pursuing an objective in one, and he's not pursuing an objective in the other. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. He does um, pursue an objective one, he doesn't in the other. That's what makes the one seem better. You're right. However, I feel that if when you phrase the rule, it's just like one person wants this goal, the other person wants the other goal, let's see who wins. I think if you start with that rule and you start writing a scene, you're going to write about insects. And I think, but if you start from a more humane uh, point of view, it's like, like this person, you, you know, wants to come to an understanding, wants to create an understanding, wants what's best for the other person, I think you might write a much more human scene. I, I did not feel like that was a scrabble for dominance 
in that scene with from Wrath of Khan. Yeah, it was kind of the best of both worlds. It was kind of like the the best. It was it was the ideal midpoint between the scene, sort of scenes I'm describing and the sort of scenes you're describing. All it right. was it was a genuinely loving scene about two people who are really trying to build something together, who have built something together, who are trying to hold on to it, and yet it you know and yet it works. Whereas the Star Trek Beyond scene didn't work because they were you know there was no real issue at stake and there was no goal that Bones was pursuing. Whereas this scene did. I just think this goes so far beyond this kind of, like, obsession with who's alpha, who's beta. I mean, that's the whole thing that's wrong with this country is these stupid obsessions about who's dominating who and who's submitting to who. I I think the stories that we have to tell... I mean, I think that these stories are definitely going out of fashion. Maybe in the, you know, in Obama's era, people were, like, hungering after this kind of thing. But now now that we've got, like, double barrel of it all the time, people saying, ha ha, I'm on top, fuck you, you know, from Trump and whatever. Like, I, I think people need to find a radically new kind of story. I think they're going to hunger for this kind of story. And I think we're done with fucking Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones stuff, or at least I hope so. Or if not, I, the stuff that I'm going to write is not going to be like that. Well, it's interesting. I think most people are assuming the opposite. I think most people are assuming that, you know, Trump will usher in a, a world of of dystopian, more dystopian <clears throat> writing. But you're right, we're already at max dystopia as it is. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Obama, ironically, ushered in this era of dystopian writing. Will Trump, uh, you know, <laughs> cause us all to discover our uh, the lost humanity of writing again? That would be fascinating. Okay, are we, uh, are we good for dialogue? Yeah, I think we're good for dialogue. We're good for dialogue. Okay, well, uh, in our first episode, I established what was supposed to be a pattern where I was going to give away a story idea. Each episode, one of us was going to give away a free story idea. And then the next episode, the other one would give away a free story idea. So uh, I'm so happy to announce James has finally done what I asked him to do all those many months ago. He has brought in an idea to give away. And so once again, the way we do this is he, I, I have no idea what he's about to say, folks. He's going to give away this idea. and He's going to talk about it for about uh, five minutes here. And then I'm going to briefly try to convince him to keep the idea or suggest ways in which maybe this idea isn't something he should throw away. And then he's going to decide whether or not he wants to keep it or lose it. And no matter what, I am not going to write a screenplay based on his idea. I'm going to, I'm going to announce that right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, all right, James, take it away. Okay, it's called Leica Part 2. <laughs> no. It's a sequel. No. <laughs> no. So uh, I was thinking instead of just um, saying whether or not I should keep it or take it away, we, we could develop this between the two of us for a little bit first because it's kind of more of a germ than anything. Um, it's called Down and Out in Heaven and Hell. Okay. And it's about, I'm not sure how it happens, but this person gets killed. I'm thinking it's like may, maybe the main character, like one of their friends dies, but they get some kind of message or they find out that there's, there's a way they can join them on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get over there. Or, or they have a friend who kind of comes and goes between the, the world of the dead and the world of the living, kind of like a Ford Prefect kind of thing uh-huh. in Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, they, they go to the afterlife, and however they get there, they are not kind of really officially dead. They're, they're kind of in, like, the afterlife, like, heaven or hell. Or, or Actually, there's all these heavens and hells there, but they're kind of undocumented. And it turns out that all of heaven and hell runs on these undocumented workers, who are people who are kind of, like, in the afterlife kind of illegally or in an undocumented way. And there's a lot of work to be done to maintain these heavens and these hells. And they got kind of get these, like, series of odd jobs 
uh, like kind of keeping these like insane heavens or these gruesome hells going. And so it's kind of like um, a combination of like spirited away of like, you know, it's kind of like this bathhouse of the gods where you kind of like you are doing work that's of a supernatural nature in this kind of other world. But it's like very grimy everyday work. You know, it's, it's a blue-collar job in the afterlife. The combination of that and... Um, do you ever see that Japanese movie, Afterlife? No, I never did. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. So a combination of, like, Spirited Away, um, uh, Afterlife, and kind of like the George Orwell book, Down and Out in Paris and London, right. in which he's just, like, this tramp on the run who's just picking up odd jobs as, like, a dishwasher or kind of like a homeless person or, you know, or this or that in Paris and London. It would be like a, a kind of a, a very like working class story of taking shitty jobs, but it would be also like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy too. It's this whole world of like the afterlife and, and the weird heavens and hells of maybe not even just for people on Earth, but people from like all over the universe and like all the different like horrors and pleasures that you have to cater to. So it's also kind of like um, a, a, a party down, right? Uh, you ever see that? Yeah, I, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, um, it's it's so the kind of the humiliations of this kind of job, and when you had other, and I don't know if it's like they get stuck in the afterlife as undocumented workers, and they kind of have to like find their way back to this world, or if it's kind of an episodic thing where it's like the person kind of comes and goes back and forth from their ordinary life, but like at night they kind of like kill themselves in some new way, and then go to this other world, and they kind of work there and they make some money there and they go back to our world and, and so who's who's our hero well that's the thing it's just like this idea i, I guess the hero I, I mean just since i my only novel is a young adult novel i thought of it as be a young adult but maybe it would be better off if it was like some kind of arthur dentish person who's like 26 years old and kind of like in this kind of and it's only occurring to me now in this kind of you know, dead end cubicleish job, and this is kind of the, maybe it's like a, a fight clubish kind of like escape into some kind of more numinous and uh, visceral uh, experience of the world. But of course, this great liveness. I mean, you have to die to do it. I don't know. Maybe some people they stay in the afterlife too long as these undocumented workers. So much in the same way that like when I lived in Japan, there were people who would like bed in. Japan for too long, for like 15 years teaching English, and they would just this look in their eyes and been away from home for too long. They, 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 right. they'd never truly be home there, and they, but if they go back to America, they won't be home there again ever truly either. Um, I don't know. So that's like, they, they, so I guess the this is maybe one of those things in which like the 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 idea is is like like Arthur Dent is kind of a non entity as a character, right. and it's it's like the it's a constant way that Douglas Adams surprises you with one crazy idea after another about how this universe works, which kind of takes uh, the precedence. Well, I don't want to shock you, but I want the hero to want more. I mm. want the hero to uh, be someone who wants something. It would seem like the most, the way it would, would seem to do the story to me mm-hmm. is that you, I want the idea that you have these undocumented workers who are sneaking into heaven and hell without dying. I don't think it, I think these should all be people who haven't died, who are still alive, mm-hmm. who are then sneaking across the border into heaven and hell uh, from the living world to do the work that the people in heaven and hell don't want to do, do the crappy work there, and then sneaking back into their into the living world. But I think that there should be someone who it's this is Orpheus and Eurydice. I think that there's got to be someone who. It's like I've got to find my lost love who may be in heaven or I've got to find my dead 
bride who may be in heaven, may be in hell, and you know, I there's got to be a way I can go retrieve her from either heaven or hell, wherever she is. And then he's told, yes, there is a way that mm-hmm. you know that there are people who can't find jobs who mm-hmm. have been you know who do work as undocumented workers in heaven and hell and are going there to do this work and then coming back and earning a living. So that is a way for people you know people who are still alive to sneak into that world and then you could go in there and as a invisible person as someone who is beneath contempt you know working class person in heaven and hell secretly search for your lost love mm-hmm. and maybe find her and try to bring her back i was thinking about that and i guess at that point it becomes about his quest to get his love back and then it's not about the milieu anymore like like i love hitchcock's guide to the galaxy and yes. I think one of the great things about it is that it dispenses with that entirely. Yes. Arthur Dent has no goal. Right. And therefore, the genius of the world building or, or the jokes are able to take... The, it doesn't feel, like, formulaic. It never, feel, it never feels like, I know what's going to happen next, or oh, we're on this part of, you know, uh, Dan Harmon's story circle or the hero's journey. Like, it's truly surprising and exciting every second. I think as soon as we give them some kind of really definite goal like that, like I guess it could be like a feature, but it seems like to me this is something more like an episodic thing that you could just kind of keep rolling out forever. Um, like like almost like a sick like Maybe it's something, they, there's an initial reason why they go out there and then they get it in episode three <laughs> and, and then it wasn't worth it, but then they're already in the life at that point. Or I don't know. I mean, think about like Parks and Rec. It was all at the beginning about like, are we going to make a park around this hole? Right. You know, and as soon as they got rid of that stupid fucking plot, that show became great. Right. Uh, as soon as they got rid of the specific want, I know this goes against everything that you advise, but I wonder if there's something that you're overlooking, uh, but, you know, in, in that like maybe... The, the, some way in which, like, keeping things less focused can lead to more discoveries. Well, I did not invent the idea that the hero should want something. No, no, I, I, and I know. And I, he should want something. Like, Arthur Dent wants a cup of tea. Right. He definitely wants a cup of tea, and he's very specific about getting a cup of tea. But it's so dumb, and it's so <laughs> banal, and so little. It's perfect for the kind of comedy that is. Like, his planet exploded, and he wants a cup of tea. He wants comfort. He's like Bilbo. Um, these are two characters who all they want is comfort and I think there's something inherently comical about a character who just wants comfort who's forced to go on an adventure Alice in Alice in Wonderland doesn't want anything and so therefore this kind of world can take the foreground and I'm wondering if there's a certain kind of story in which if the hero's desire is too sharp and well defined it ruins the story you know, or down out in Paris and London is is something where I mean, of course, what he really wants is he wants to lead an interesting enough life to write a book about, which is exactly <laughs> what he gets. I, you know, I love this idea. I'm a big fan of down out in Paris and London and doing, you know, transferring that to heaven and hell. I think could work. You know, I certainly feel like I wanted to be married to uh, to Orpheus and Eurydice. I wanted to be a love story because I like love stories. I wanted to be a story about someone who wants something because I like stories about people who want things. I want it to be a feature uh, rather than a TV series, even though I love TV series. But that's just my... I feel like that's what the story would be would be for the best. Um, I feel like there... You know, I feel like just the, the concept itself would be interesting enough to fill up a movie or a, or a book. I feel like there would need to be 
there would need to be a whole lot more going on in heaven and hell if you're going to have it be a tv series you would need then you have to start worrying about like okay who is our regular cast in heaven and hell like mm-hmm. who plays god <laughs> right well that, that's great i mean getting up to the point where you, you so if you're in heaven and hell that means sooner or later everybody's gonna be like, what they're expecting is like sooner or later this guy's gonna get meet god right and if god is this like cut rate schlub who is just running heaven and hell as cheaply as possible to make maximum profit the, uh, um, y- 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 like some real piece of shit like I-, I think that would be like comically great right I think what this needs is a Ford Prefect character to guide the main character somebody who's been running this dodge for a while right um, but not as omnipotent as the doctor but maybe not as blasé and heartless as Ford Prefect right and maybe somebody who's genuinely a friend of the main of the hero but not very reliable Right. What what Doctor Who and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the things have taught us is that once you like have established a fantastical milieu, you can just turn that crank for an arbitrary number of episodes, um, and 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 do all kinds of amazing things. Right. Um, and and there's not one thing that the Doctor wants. You know, like no, like that's a huge that's a huge thing with Doctor Who is what does the Doctor want? Is you know, after fifty one years of episodes, we still have no idea. <laughs> Or 53 years of episodes. It's something um, very British about this. Whether yeah, it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is. or Doctor Who, or Alice in Wonderland, or whatever. Well, and they seem to be addicted to these stories. Douglas which, Adams wrote for Doctor Who. Right. But, so he, he picked it up from there. But they seem to be addicted to these stories, which somebody goes into a fantastical world and they want nothing. Yeah. It's uh, it's all very British. I wonder if an American can even write something like that but, if we don't have it in our blood. We're not. You're not British, sir. So, all right. So, I think that this is... We could we could discuss this all night, but I think at some point we've got to we've got to go ahead and put we've got to go ahead and call it. So it sounds like you're getting you know you're kind of excited. Are you ready to actually give this away? Are you going to pull the trigger, or or do you want to keep working on it? I mean, there's like that I haven't written word one of this, um, and there's three or four other ideas that I have that I want to write beforehand. However, ideas are worthless, so. I mean, I, I, if somebody wants to make something with this, they're welcome to, but I'll probably take a crack at it later, and they'll probably be, be so totally different. And also, this isn't the first time somebody has thought of an idea of people going into the afterlife and fucking around and doing stuff. Maybe the idea of undocumented workers in the afterlife right. is original um, and timely, but um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm going to... Uh, I'll take a crack at it at some point. But okay. you know what? But if somebody else wants to do something with it, fine. Fine. We're dangling this in front of you, dear America. We're dangling it, and then we're yanking it back away. He's not necessarily sure he wants to give it away. But I'm giving it away because he's nobody's going to do okay. it the same way that <laughs> nobody's going to do it. What if I had said nobody's going to do it? And then you came back the next week having <laughs> written my idea. You know, the thing is, it was much easier to write your idea than it was to write my idea. Oh, you're you expect me to write this idea, don't you? You are you are no you no. Are I'm, trying. I'm, I'm, I'm talking. I'm saying the psychological <laughs> reality. Since I had right. zero um, uh, kind of uh, commitment to your idea, it was just like a bunch of words that I heard once. Right. It was very easy to say, "Well, what happens next? What happens next?" And then to write something. Uh, with this, it's something I've kind of brooded on for a while. Like every time, I, like I would start, I would just like, "Oh, right. wait, 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 not that. Oh, not that." Because oh, so, I have a commitment to it, I. Like I, we should, I, maybe this, there's a lesson in that you should approach all of your ideas as though it was somebody else's terrible idea. I think that's a good idea. Um, so, so, so we, you are inviting people to write this. People yeah, should write yeah. this. Go ahead. Okay, America. 
this is a great idea. I'm a big fan of it. I think that uh, that you should write it. This is a person here on Earth discovers that they can go be an undocumented worker in heaven and hell, and then we had various thoughts as to where it could go from there, but nothing, uh, nothing too certain. No okay. consensus. No consensus. Yeah, I didn't convince you, and you didn't convince me. That's true, as as is often the case. So. James, how are you feeling? That was episode four. That was great. I, I, once again, just the greatest podcast. The greatest podcast known to man. Okay. Well, I think that was I think that was a good episode. Hopefully, it'll cut down a little little smaller than it is right now. Uh, but then we'll we'll come back for episode number five at some point. So thank you very much, everybody. Matt Bird signing off. James Kennedy. See okay. You. Closing music. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.